for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Let's face it, it can be easy to forget in our increasingly urbanized world that food needs land. Farmers need land to grow crops. About a fifth of the land in the U.S. is used for agriculture, not including pasture land, and that land isn't evenly distributed across the nation. And the quality of the land varies widely, too. Today, the land accessible to farmers is shrinking. The South is more vulnerable to land loss and less prepared to stanch it. Scarcity of farmland affects how agriculture works. It also catalyzes climate change. How? Listen up. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your host for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Irina Zhurov heads back to the land to report this story. If you get the reference to the Back to the Land movement, two extra points on your term paper. <laughs> One day in the early 1800s, John and Robert James's great-great-great-grandfather, who lived in Virginia, got on a horse and rode to Kentucky. And visited some family he had here and uh, fell in love with the countryside. This is Robert. He says this ancestor of his then went on to Ohio for some business, eventually got on a riverboat, sold the horse, and ended up in Mississippi. For 20 years, he worked in cotton trading and banking. But in 1842, he took what money he'd saved up, returned to Lexington, Kentucky, which he'd visited all those years ago, and bought about 300 acres. I believe that that was always his plan to, to come back here. The landscape had just lodged itself in his mind. The farm is very beautiful and rolling. That's Robert's brother, John. The farm has grown and shrunk over the years, but the James family has stayed on that land ever since. John and Robert were born in the city, but they often visited the farm. And by the time John was five and Robert eight... We were able to uh, move out to the family farm actually into our great-grandfather's house. After he had passed away, we were able to, to buy it and move in there. As a kid, Robert liked to play in a creek that runs on the land. As we got a little older and, and started to be able to drive implements and actually do some manual labor, we got, uh, got involved on that side too. John says he took to it easily. I really enjoyed being outside and working with my hands in the dirt, getting to play in the dirt, getting to play with equipment and machinery. Uh, one of my earliest memories of working was cultivating tobacco. Tobacco has been an important crop on the farm since the late 1800s, when burly tobacco arrived in Kentucky. For many years, livestock was a mainstay. Slowly, the Jameses moved to grain production, corn, soybeans, some rye, John says he actually remembers that transition. I witnessed the disappearance of fences that separated what used to be pastures 
to make way for larger field equipment for grain production. The farm evolved in other ways, too. In the 1960s, John and Robert's grandfather stopped plowing the land. It took a long time to plow ground. He would sit on a tractor hooked to a plow from sunrise to sunset for weeks on end. <laughs> and maybe that, uh, maybe he thought that there had to be a better way to do it. The idea was so far-fetched at the time that when their grandfather ordered a no-till planter, the dealer had to go around the Midwest in search of parts to actually assemble the machine. Turns out he was ahead of his time. Today, no-till farming is thought to be better for soils and for carbon capture. Roots and plants stay intact in the dirt, allowing the soil to hold more water and build up a healthy community of microorganisms and bacteria. We found that once you quit plowing the ground and the microbes and the soil really develop, that after about three years, the yields start improving on their own without any change in the inputs. The practice stuck, and today the farm is 100% no-till. John says they implemented other practices that were novel on commercial farms at the time. They planted cover crops like wheat, which restore nutrients like nitrogen to the soil. Uh, soil conservation has always been a really big part here. We've used cover crops as a method of holding the soil for wind and, and water erosion, but we never really truly realized the benefits that it had on the parts of the soil that we couldn't see. But even as the family worked to establish sustainable farming practices on their land, so future generations could keep working it, there was a different threat looming. Lexington sort of set up on a wagon wheel type of roadmap where um, all the surrounding communities had a, had a pike coming into Lexington because this was the main market for agricultural goods. New developments started to spread outwards along those pikes or roads, like Pac-Man eating up farming land and communities. And it was just very quickly uh, losing that beautiful uh, bluegrass pasture was, was going into houses. Even where we, we are on the edge of the county, kind of the southwest corner of Fayette County, uh, we saw, we're seeing houses coming down Harrodsburg Pike, Harrodsburg Road, towards us and, and you know, have come to about two miles from where we are right now. There was also residential development encroaching on the backside of the property. They were getting besieged from all sides, including from the inside. The James farm was owned by various heirs, and Robert says after his great-grandfather passed away, a great-aunt sold off a corner of the land to a developer. And it was uh, subdivided into 10-acre tracts. People are drawn to this landscape, and, and uh, it's, it's a both a blessing and a curse because when they come, they need more houses, more shopping centers and everything. And so, you know, this country will just burning up the prime farmland here. From 2001 to 2016, 11 million acres of land in the U.S., or about 2,000 acres per day, were converted from agricultural use to urban or developed use. That's according to the American Farmland Trust, a national nonprofit that works to preserve agricultural land and promote the kinds of farming practices that keep soil healthy. Billy Van Pelt works for the trust. 
if you look at our map the, in the historic uh, farmland conversion from 2001 to 2016, the vast majority of farmland conversion has been east of the Mississippi, and the majority of that has been in the southeast, particularly around the coasts. The trust looked at the percentage of ag lands in each state that have been converted. Of the top 12 states, half are below the Mason-Dixon line. If you look by highest acreage converted, eight of 12 states are southern. And in the south, much of that land was turned into something called low-density residential land use. Think suburbs, where every house sits on a nice roomy lawn. Or rural development, where large homes look over 10, 20, or even more rolling acres. There's still land, but it's just for show, not necessarily farming. And really, if you look at it, low-density residential is, is not a sustainable model. I mean, it's just another form of sprawl. Why is the conversion of ag land to residential and commercial development a problem? There's the obvious piece. We need agricultural land to grow our food. And as we say at American Farmland Trust, no farms, no food, no future. But it's more than that, Billy says. Good farming practices are good for the planet. The resiliency of those soils can take us through climate change. Agriculture itself is a contributor to climate change. About 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. But the American Farmland Trust research indicates that developed lands release a lot more of these gases. Certain farming practices, like the no-till planting and crop rotations that Jameses use, can trap carbon. Plus, healthy soil can absorb more water during storms, decreasing flooding. DeWitt Hardy, the farmland preservation director for the Ag Department in one of the most affected states in the country, North Carolina, says conserving farmland is just another way of managing natural resources for the future. It's like maintaining a car or maintaining a, a tractor or whatever you want, to, or a piece of equipment. You've always got to be sitting there thinking about what I need to repair in advance to taking that comparison to our natural setting on our lands. We've got to be maintaining and helping Mother Nature in that process. That doesn't mean protecting all land. Rather, it's holding on to the best, most productive, resilient soil. Like other natural resources, DeWitt says agricultural land is finite. And our population in the world is growing at a tremendous rate. But our land resources remain the same. Our society has taken land resources as being just something that's always going to be there, but it's not. The Jameses were keenly aware of this fact as they watched developers gobble up tracts of land all around them, as pieces of their own farm went that way. And Robert says they worried. We wanted our farm protected because you know, the last crop that any farm will ever raise is houses in this area. It's the final crop that goes in. And we didn't, didn't want that for our farm. When we come back, we hear what the James family did to protect their land and why not every farmer can follow in their footsteps. But first, Drawing on 125 years of experience, Lodge Cast Iron Bakeware works alongside you as you try, learn, taste, and create memorable foods. From delivering the perfect crispy crust at pizza night to baking gooey cinnamon rolls for Saturday mornings, 
Lodge Bakeware helps you make delicious family foods. Lodge's Bakeware line features nine expertly crafted products to help home cooks. Each bakeware piece features a dual handle design for effortless lifting, an easy release season finish, and reliable durability that ensures it won't bend or warp over time. The Lodge cast irons help with our baking and their support of this podcast. SFA thanks them. Producer Irina Zhorov picks back up our story. In and around Lexington, which is in Fayette County, Kentucky, the development of farmland has been a swift business for decades. By 2000, local leaders decided to take action to slow it. They created a Purchase of Development Rights program. It works like this. Farmers without plans to develop their land can voluntarily give up their right to do so permanently. The conservation easement placed on the land is attached to its title. So even if the land is sold, the new owners can't develop it. John and Robert James's father, who holds the deed for the family's farm, signed up. This is Robert again. He grew up on it, and um, he had uh, really never taken to school quite as much. He just wanted to, to be on the land, be outside, and, and work with uh, his dad and everything. It was kind of all, always his highest aim. Farmers who participate in the program are paid for the development rights they surrender. John and Robert's father reinvested this payment in the farm. He was able to buy 90 acres of of the family farm from a great aunt. He now owns 420 acres, all consolidated in the immediate family's hands. John says the easement allows them to make all of the decisions regarding land use. It makes the future seem more secure. I frequently found myself rolling across the field doing whatever activity, and it occurs to me that without that program, that field may not have been ours because it was in previously in the possession of another family member who would have handed it down to their heirs and then who may have done who knows what with it. Quick aside here, Robert has since joined the board of the Purchase of Development Rights program. He says the conservation easement doesn't cover the whole James farm. Some of their acres lie in a different county, which doesn't have such a program. Many places don't. According to the American Farmland Trust, the South lags in its response to farmland conversion. Many states and municipalities lack policies and programs like the Purchase of Development Rights Program, but also others, that would slow or prevent farmland loss. That makes the land here particularly vulnerable. Dewitt Hardy with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture says part of it is about money. Easement payments can come from local, state, or federal funds, whatever's available, but... We don't have enough money to actually proceed on what people are wanting to do or be willing to do as far as conservation easements. Some municipalities have easement programs that give tax breaks rather than cash. But since easements tend to result in lower property values, people often want to be compensated. Billy Van Pelt with the Trust says another piece of the problem is many parts of the South don't have comprehensive planning. It's when communities reach a tipping point that they know that they have to do something differently. 
much of the South hasn't seen the same kind of population growth and dense development that the Northeast or the West had in the 20th century. But now the South is one of the fastest growing regions in the country. Lexington's population, for example, has increased by almost a third since 1990. A comprehensive rural land management plan was adopted in 1999. The Purchase of Development Rights program was part of that plan. Since its creation, the program has conserved more than 30,000 acres of prime agricultural land in Fayette County. I believe the preservation efforts in the county have really changed the quality of life. It has worked to ensure that development doesn't encroach. This is Ashley Smith, Lexington native and CEO of Black Soil Kentucky. It's an agritourism organization focused on highlighting Black farmers in Kentucky. But when I think about the opportunity that has been left on the table to engage all landowners around conserving their farm and conserving their land, it's a missed opportunity. It's missed engagement. Though Fayette County's farmland preservation efforts are seen as a model in many respects, Ashley says the Black farmers she works with don't benefit. Nationally, Black farmers are losing their land at a faster rate than white farmers. There are million, million dollar easements going out to these affluent landowners across the state in Lexington, Fayette County. And when I think about who in Lexington, Fayette County has accessed that within the Black land-owning community, it, I'm very hard I'm remiss to even think of one family who has received a, a conservation easement. Lexington doesn't collect demographic data on the landowners they work with, so we don't know what percentage of beneficiaries are Black. But others who work in land preservation told Gravy the same thing as Ashley. Black farmers nationwide are less likely to have easements on their land. Yes, most landowners are white, but that's not the only problem. In Lexington, Ashley says, many don't qualify for the program. It requires farmers to own a minimum of 20 acres. She says many Black farmers in the area don't hit that. The average acreage in Lexington, I would say, would be about 10 to 12 acres. Ebony Alexander echoes this. She's the executive director of the Black Family Land Trust, which works with Black families in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia to preserve their land. Other land trusts are interested in large pieces of land, 1,000 acres, 500 acres. Most of our landowners that we work with have less than 150 acres of land. Preserving large, contiguous parcels of land is always a goal with conservation. But Ebony says that shouldn't discount smaller operations. Small farms are integral to making sure that we have a secure food system, to making sure that there's some food security, and to make sure that we have locally grown foods so that we know what's going on with our food. I think that COVID was an excellent example of the value of small farmers. Ebony says education is another reason many Black farmers don't often have easements. Many simply don't know about them or their information isn't accurate. There's a lot of miseducation and a lot of myths around that. So it makes people somewhat leery. You have to remember, Black landowners have lost more than 90% of their land in the past century. 
sometimes because they decided to sell, but often against their will due to discrimination, force, or theft. Gravy has previously reported on black land loss. You can find those stories online. But black farmers have been discriminated against by the very agencies that are now running conservation programs. So there's mistrust, too. Still, for those families that have held on to their land, Ebony says preserving it is really important. For many of the families that we work with, they have instilled in their children through multiple generations the value of the land, the value of the land as agricultural land, what that land means and has meant to their family since its ownership. Whether this was the land that your great-great-great-grandfather got immediately um, following slavery and you've held on to it, or this was something that was purchased during Jim Crow, what has that land meant to your family? The James family farm has a different story. Like much of this part of Kentucky, it was once indigenous land, likely Cherokee, Shawnee, or Osage, before it was deeded to white settlers. This is Robert. We're the third family to own this land after the original land grant. They've been on it ever since. We just have a true appreciation for the land. It's what we have here with our uh, family being on the same piece of land for 178 years is really unique. Generations of Jameses have lived entire lives here. There's a stable built in 1842 that's still standing. There's a tobacco barn from the 1890s that their great-great-grandfather built. His name is carved into a post there. There's the house where they grew up, and then there's the land itself, rolling gently for more than 400 acres, tucked among bluegrass horse farms, and somehow, still just minutes from the city. Irina Joroff reported and produced this story. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Charlie Kyer makes our stories sound good. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to learn more about who we are and what we do. In 2021, Building on the good work of this season of Gravy, we'll dig into environments as our programming theme. To do that, we need your help. Become a member or make a donation to help us explore the nooks and crannies of the American South. Your dollars fund our good work and earn our deep thanks. And they help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.